0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12? Tonight we begin in verse 14. We didn't finish it. We barely started in it last week. So tonight we want to look again at it. It's hard for us in our modern history to imagine what slavery would be like. One can only judge from reading some of the reports of slavery in this country and slavery in other countries. It still goes on, by the way, in other parts of the world. But it's a frustrating, debilitating, degrading kind of a life. Israel had been slaves. They had known slavery for many generations now, 430 years they had been in Egypt. Abraham was given a plan by God. God actually said that his his, um, offspring would inherit the land that he was in. However, he said, you'll be taken to a foreign land, and for about 400 years, and it turned out to be 430 years exactly, you will dwell in another land, the latter part of their stay in Egypt was when they were made to serve with great rigor to build the fortune cities of the Egyptians, to become slave labor, and they cried out to God. And God told Moses, I have seen, I have heard, and I am now come down to deliver. And God unfolds his great power by a series of what we called last week, attention-getters, plagues. See, Moses asked a question, when uh, Pharaoh asked a question. When Moses said, thus saith the Lord, let my people go, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he found out. He found out the hard way. You know, God has an easy way and a hard way, I'm convinced. There are some people, it seems are moldable, supple, and it doesn't take much pressure. The wind of the Holy Spirit can sort of blow through their lives and they pick up on it rather quickly. Then there are those who are just thick-headed. They're dense. I'm very much like that. It takes a little more pressure, sometimes a lot of pressure. Sometimes I have to get little bumps all over my head as I bang into several walls at many different angles before I realize, Tuh, this is not the way to go. <laughs> God is faithful and he still guides, but the thing is that you want to develop as much sensitivity to the spirit of God as you can. Make it easy on yourself. Don't say, Lord, I'll do your will as long as it's this. God might say, no, it's this. And it's best that we learn that now rather than the hard way. God was going to let his people go, no matter who stood in the way. Now, Pharaoh could have said, I humbly bow before your God, the Lord God Almighty, but he didn't do that. He said, who is the Lord? And he hardened his heart several times, and God is about to break him. We've already seen, well, let's back up. You have in your outline, the outline of the book of Exodus that was passed out to you. We're in the second phase now. Chapters 12 through 14, the emancipation phase, they are being let go from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt, and there is a corollary, there is an analogy to the Christian life. We were in bondage to sin. Some of you may still be in bondage to sin. You might be in bondage to the grip of the devil. And even as the children of Israel were set free from their bondage, when we come to Christ, we are set free. Whoever the sun sets free, Jesus said, is free indeed. You are a slave tonight of some kind, of one or the other. Either you're a slave of the devil or you're a slave of God. Paul said in the book of Romans, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now... Man likes to think that he's a free thinker. He likes to think that he's the captain of his own fate, he controls his own destiny. But actually, all men and women are slaves of sin or, if you obeyed that form of doctrine as Paul said, believed in Christ, you're a slave of his. Jesus had a conversation one time with the religious rulers in Israel. And he said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they retorted angrily, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. We're not, of course, they were slaves, weren't they? We read about it right here. We're children of Abraham. We're free. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Back in the 1970s, Bob Dylan wrote a song, You Got to Serve Somebody. Of course, he said, you got to serve somebody. I just like the way he did that. And that's true. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You will hold to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. Years ago in Los Angeles, there was a man I hear who walked the streets and he had a sandwich board, a sign that covered his body. And on the front, he said, I'm a slave of Jesus. Of course, he was. Mocked by the people who saw it. Oh, look at that. He says he's the slave of Jesus. When you turn around, it said, Whose slave are you? And the world might mock you because you belong to Jesus and you're his slave, and it's true. You are a servant of Jesus Christ tonight. He owns you, He paid the price of redemption. You're not your own, you're bought with a price. But as the old saying goes, to be his slave is to be a king. I'd rather be Jesus' slave than sin-slave. There's a lot of people that are enslaved by various things. They're enslaved by uh, alcohol. They're enslaved by uh, their job. It has them. It holds them. It controls them. Some people are a slave to others' opinions. They're always trying to please men, to make people happy so that they don't... uh, so everybody will like them. But it's better to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, so this day, you shall, this day shall be a memorial to you, a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Here is God's giving to Israel, the Passover feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. We covered what that meant last week. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. In other words, you're going to get together and have a celebration unto the Lord. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, it's the fourteenth of Nisan, or Nisan, however you want to say it, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty first day of the month at evening, for seven days. No leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person, shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations you shall eat unleavened bread." Now, a few weeks ago I was asked by someone, How long did these plagues last? What is the time span of these plagues? Was it a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years? It seems that these plagues lasted between three months and six months altogether, from the time they began to the time that they ended. He asked me the question and I really didn't know how to answer him. I just said, I don't know, which is usually the best answer when you don't know. And so I researched it a little bit and I found as I read the scriptures that uh, it seems there was probably about six months total. We know because the second plague of the frogs came six days after the first plague where the water of the Niles turned to blood. And as the frogs were upon the land, the Scripture tells us that it was still muddy and it was starting to dry out the ground, which means it was probably at the flood season of the Nile, which is sometime around October. Between the first and the last of October is where the Nile reaches its flood stage. Then we have the seventh plague, the plague of the hail, which hit the barley and the flax. The barley and the flax begin to ripen in the first part of February. So we have October, now we're in February. And we know when the tenth plague happened. It was the, between the tenth and the fourteenth of Nisan, of Nisan, which is March and April. So beginning in October, ending in around March or April, that's about six months total that the plagues lasted. Ooh, what a long time to be under God's judgment. Now verses 21 through 28. Moses delivers the message God told him to deliver to the children of Israel, and they did exactly what God said. Now go to verse 29. It came to pass at midnight the Lord struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now try to put some emotion into that verse when you read it. Imagine what that was like. Imagine the wails that went up from the homes of all the Egyptians who disobeyed God. All of the hope centered around that child, perhaps. And the firstborn died. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead." Actually, in every single house, Egyptian and Israelite, something died. It was either a firstborn or it was a lamb. Something was dead in every single house. Either by faith a lamb was sacrificed and the blood was applied or the firstborn died because of the lack of believing in what God said he would do. So it's either the lamb as a vicarious atonement in place of the firstborn. It was the firstborn. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and he said, get up and go. Rise and go from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. And I'm sure that in his voice, instead of pride, instead of hardness, instead of arrogance, he said it with humiliation, with great sadness. Also take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And notice this. And bless me also. Why do you think he said that? I think he said that because he has had enough of the curses of God. He's had six months of plagues, and now his firstborn son is dead. Bless me also. In other words, if God's curse is as powerful as I have seen over the past six months, imagine how powerful his blessings must be. Bless me also, please. You know that's an interesting way to look at it. Before I became a Christian, I dabbled a little bit. I wasn't heavy into it. I dabbled. I was a curious teenager and I did, as many curious teenagers do, stupid things. And One of the stupid things I did as a curious teenager was to dabble in the occult. I bought some books, and I was fascinated with people who did various things, and we decided to astral project to Mexico and different places around the world, soul travel, and we did all sorts of strange things. During that time, I witnessed how strong the power of the enemy was. In fact, I'm convinced that a lot of kids today dabble in witchcraft and the occult and Satanism because they see the power. That Satan has. There is incredible power that Satan promises to people who sell their soul to him. And a lot of young kids want that power. They don't want to be held accountable to anyone. They want to be sold a bill of goods. And there is incredible thing, there are incredible things that happen in the realm of darkness. But one day somebody shared the gospel with me, I began to think, now, if the enemy of God is that powerful, how much more powerful must God be? How much more able God is to change my life, to give me hope, to give me salvation, all the things that he promised? Of course there's higher accountability. But if the devil and the power of darkness is that great, And God has allowed, for some reason, the enemy to have that much kind of reign and he's that powerful. How much more powerful God is. So he says, I have had enough of these plagues. Bless me. Knowing that, today I am not afraid of the power of the enemy, of Satan. Oh, don't get me wrong. I respect his power. I don't toy with it. I don't raise my fist at the devil and yell at him but I'm not afraid of them. I've had threats over the years since I've been in Albuquerque from all sorts of little dissonant groups, Satanists and little cultic groups who've called me and said, we're praying for your demise and that your marriage break up and we're praying for your death and I've had assassination threats and all that. And it's like big stinking deal. That doesn't really bug me. First of all, if it's my time to go, it's my time. I don't care. No matter how that is, God is in control, not the devil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I'm not afraid for me. I'm afraid for those people who are fighting the power of God. Oh, we're calling upon the devil. Ooh. you're no match for God. The devil is no match for God. And it's just great to let's say, oh, now, Lord, just do your thing with them. Grab their hearts. Show them your power. Pharaoh had seen God's power. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in a hurry. Get them out of here. We've had six months of plagues. Get them out quick. For they said, we'll sh- we shall all be dead. It's... "'Happened with our firstborn, now it's going to be us next.' So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians.' Now, as we said last week, the reason they plundered them, they became sort of sanctified panhandlers, is because of the back wages. They were slaves. There's 430 years of back wages that they owe them. So they plundered the Egyptians, even as God had said. But all they had to do is say, hey, can I have that uh, fine watch you have on your hand and uh, that nice ring you have? And, hey, what about these trinkets that you have over here? And they just plundered the Egyptians and they asked for it and they were given favor. Actually, they just wanted them out of their sight. Pharaoh finally gave up. He'd become hard, but all of a sudden when it touched his own son, he was ready to give up. You know, it's sad, but it's true that many people don't even think about spiritual things till a tragedy happens. They go down their merry way, go down Life's Street and Just, you know, who cares about God? Who cares about spiritual things? Then when something happens, they either blame God or they seek God. Sometimes, tragically, it takes a tragedy for people to realize, whoa, I need to anchor my life in something more secure. I must give my life to my Creator. In fact, David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Um, For all of you history buffs, there was an interesting inscription that was found on the Sphinx. Outside of uh, Cairo, at the place called Giza, there are the pyramids, the famous area of the pyramids. And in front of the pyramids is that great Sphinx. There was an inscription found between the paws of the Sphinx, which read, Whosoever uncovers me, or this Sphinx, from the sands of Egypt shall become the next king, the next ruler. And for years, Egyptologists were trying to grapple with what that meant. They could only figure that it meant concerning what we're reading here in the book of Exodus. And I'll tell you why it's a strange inscription. Because the kingship was never given to someone who dug up something and found it. The only method that people became kings, usually, unless they were overtaken by a foreign army, was through something called dynastic succession. In other words, if your dad's on the throne and you're the firstborn, you'll sit on the throne. But they figure that it was written by the successor of Amenhotep II, who happened to be Thumos IV. Thumos IV, they believe, was not the firstborn son of Amenhotep II, but probably the second son, that the first one died, and in order to somehow explain how the second got to the throne, they made up the story, he uncovered the Sphinx outside the pyramids in Giza. Because all of a sudden now, a shift has taken place, and uh, the firstborn, through dynastic succession, has not taken over the throne. So an attempt to explain that in the annals of Egyptian history, that's how they did it. Well, the death angel came. In every home, as we said, something was dead, either a lamb or the firstborn. Um, It has to be said again, anyone, anyone could have been saved. God did not save them because they were Jewish. He saved them because they applied the blood of a lamb. And if an Egyptian believed, and some of them did, we read, there's a multitude of people, a mixed multitude, Hebrews and some Egyptians. Whoever applied the blood to the lintels and doorposts, the death angel would pass over them when the blood was applied. And some of them did. You know, I think that that's very important. God doesn't care where you go to church. God's not going to ask you that. You're not going to stand before the judgments. You're going to say, Now, uh, where uh, did you fellowship? Where did you have your membership? How many good deeds have you done? How nice were you? He's going to see if the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to your life. If not, you've lost all hope. If so, you have complete hope. You either have a hopeless end or an endless hope, and it all hinges upon the application of the blood of Christ. That's what he'll look for. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. About 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them, also in flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now, Ramses is probably ancient Tanis. You've heard that word before if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I figure that at least that would help you understand. Remember, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they believed was at Tanis. They mentioned that during the movie. Well, that's the area of Ramses. So uh, we learn a little bit from Indiana Jones here. It says six hundred thousand. Men. There are enough references in the Old Testament that tell us that these were 600,000 men, 20 years old and above. Anyone below 20 was considered a child back then. 20 and above, you were a man. So you have to count 600,000 men, plus the children, 20 years and younger, plus wives. You have around 2.5 million people moving in rank and file out of the land of Egypt. I mean, that's their entire workforce. Then it says, verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them also. You're going to read a lot about them in Numbers chapter 11. They're basically troublemakers, troublemakers. They're a mixed multitude. There seems to be two different groups. One is a group that saw the plagues, believed in the power of God, applied the blood and went out with the children of Israel. But then there was a group who were obstinate, complainers, and dissonant. And they always complained. They were ungrateful to the Lord. And uh, we read about the mixed multitude on and on as we get through the book of Numbers a little bit later on. A lot of the reason there was a mixed multitude is because the children of Israel, some of them intermarried. They didn't stay within the Hebrew faith. They married some of the people who in Egypt worshiped foreign gods. So there was a breakdown already in the commitment to God. Now there's an important uh, lesson in the New Testament. For every single Christian, if you have a relationship with the Lord and you're single, you've got to trust something. God loves you enough to give you the person that is most likely to fulfill your life. People say, well, is there only one person? I don't know, and I really don't care at this point. God knows what you need, and if you submit yourselves unto Him, He will give you the person who will fulfill your need. But you've got to wait on the Lord. Now, you can circumvent that and say, no, Lord, listen, you've been a busy God for a long time. Why don't you just take a little rest? I think I can pick my own here. No, I think that you should let the Lord pick your mate. I think God has the highest for you. And I've always said, in fact, when I was single, and while I was single, like every single guy who was basically normal, I wanted to be married. But I said, Lord, I'm ready to stay single as long as it takes. You know the person that's best for me. And God did know. And she has fulfilled my life. I love in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, God says, It's not good that man should be alone. I'm glad God said that. The first time God ever said something wasn't good is when he looked at man. He made his creation. He said, oh, that's good. Made the stars. Oh, that's great. He saw man. It's not good that that man should be alone. He's not complete. I'm going to make him a helper. A helper that is comparable to him. We hear those words and we think, "Well, that didn't sound very glamorous or romantic. I'm going to make him a helper. Oh, here's your wife, your helper. And you've got to understand, wives, that the word helper means someone who will bring that man to complete fulfillment. God has sent you into his life to make him blossom. He can't blossom without you. He's half a man without you. And I'm sure that you may remind him of that from time to time. But it's true. In fact, the word could also be translated rescue. Rescue. It's not good that Adam should be alone. He needs a rescue operation. I'm going to send him Eve. So God brought the woman to the man. I still believe God does that. With all my heart, I believe that God brings people together. And those that commit their lives to him and wait upon him, Father knows best. And it's great to see the unfolding plan of God in the life of two people. It's sad when people try to circumvent that by an unequal yoke, by marrying knowingly a non-believer, saying, well, I believe in missionary dating, and uh, he might be an unbeliever now but God will use me as I put little tracks in his sandwiches at lunchtime and don't worry, he'll come to Christ. Usually I have seen the opposite happen. Instead of the unbeliever coming to know Christ, the believer usually compromises. And this caused a real problem for the children of Israel as they left Egypt. Um, interesting thing about mixed multitudes, I believe every church has one. I believe every church has a mixed multitude. Now. There's different mixes depending on different churches, but I'm not going to to, uh, kind of uh, aggrandize this fellowship and saying, oh, but we're the pure ones. I think every church has a mixed multitude. I think that there are those who just want to serve the Lord and there are those who come and they serve the Lord up to a point. And when they're not entertained anymore, when things don't make them feel good, when they're not patted on the back and they don't get what they want, their commitment ceases. They're the most dangerous people in the church. They cause a leavening effect. The commitment is very shallow. They're the first ones to complain. I said it before. Oftentimes people come from different fellowships. They come to Calvary Chapel. They see that, well, we don't take an offering formally. And it's just basic praise music and Bible. study, they go, oh, I love this place. Oh, this is out of sight. Oh, it is righteous. Oh, I love it. And I usually just kind of say, well, that's really neat. And I really mean that, but I also know that many of those same people in six months will be the ones who I don't like this and that, and the commitment is shallow sometimes. You know, you don't dance to their tune. And it can be a problem. Well, let's go on. They baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all of the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of Passover. No outsider shall eat it." So the last few verses basically tell us this. God made a promise that they would be in Egypt. Four hundred and thirty years they were there, now God took them out. In other words, God kept his promises. God promised Abraham they'd be there, but they'd have their own land. Now the promise is being fulfilled. What a long time to wait. 430 years. Yeah, I know you said 430 years, but boy, that's a long time and you have to be the one to wait it out. God has given us so many promises, every single one of them you can be rest assured of. You can be rest assured. You need to be assured of them as this world gets so dark, as people's opinions are so various. You need to have firm footing. You need to have a foundation that doesn't weaken. You need to believe the promises of God. There's a great old story about a guy named Crowfoot. He was a chief of the Blackfoot tribe uh, in Alberta, Canada. Actually his name, yeah, was Crowfoot, chief of the Blackfoot Indians. The Canadian Pacific Railroad wanted permission to cross his land and he gave them permission Uh, between Calgary, Alberta, and Medicine Hat to cross the land. In exchange for his kindness, the railroad gave him a lifetime pass. He could ride on the railroad anywhere, anytime. He put that little pass in a leather pouch, hung it around his neck. But he never used it. He had a promise that could be cashed anytime, for a lifetime, but he just kind of hung it in a nice little patch. It looked really nice, but he never used it. I think a lot of Christians treat God's promises like that. We put them on little plaques. So you walk by and it's a nice little gold plaque that has this promise on it or we have little promise boxes. Some of them even wind up and have tunes that come out of them standing on the promises of God. But we got to apply them and rest assured that those things are true. And what God said happened. And so the Lord said to Moses, And Aaron, verse 43, this is the ordinance of the Passover, no outsider shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones." That also was spoken prophetically of the Messiah, even as you wouldn't break any of the bones of the Lamb for the Passover. Prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ, in Psalm 34, verse 20, it says, He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. And in the New Testament we read that not one of the bones of Jesus Christ was broken in fulfillment of that prophecy. As the Lamb was slain in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he fulfills all of these kind of predictions. All the congregation, verse 47, of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger journeys with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it." Circumcision was a sign of a deal, a covenant that God made with Abraham. Now God meant business. To not be circumcised was to be sort of in denial of the covenant that God had made with his people. To refuse to be circumcised was saying, I'm not going to bear the sign of the covenant, thus signifying I will not keep the covenant. Remember when uh, Moses was on his way back to Egypt? One of his sons, hadn't been circumcised, actually both of them. And it says that God almost killed Moses. Here Moses, the leader of the covenant, is going to come and he hadn't even kept the covenant. God meant business. Finally he says, we've got to circumcise our child, honey. And she got all upset and said, you're a bloody husband to me because of the circumcision. But God was showing that you've got to keep it. Now for Christians, of course, It's a spiritual kind of a thing. In fact, we don't need to be anything to be saved, we need to believe in Jesus Christ. We come by faith. You're not saved by circumcision, you're not saved by baptism. In fact, many in the Old Testament who kept circumcision were chided and condemned by the Lord because they didn't keep it in their hearts. Their hearts weren't circumcised. They just went through an outward ritual. They were religious, but they didn't believe God and his promise, and they didn't keep it in their hearts. It says in Philippians chapter 3, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So circumcision was a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. What's the inward reality? That the fleshly nature is not to be predominant, but the spiritual nature. I'm going to serve the Lord. My life has, first of all, been given over to God. Verse 49, One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Now in chapter 13 we see the responsibilities given for this redeemed people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn. "'Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and animal, it is mine.'" God wanted the first. Whatever opened the womb, the firstborn, animal or human, belonged to him. God called the children of Israel his firstborn. When Pharaoh was persecuting them and causing them to be slaves, God says, "'You are hurting my firstborn.'" the children of Israel. And so because God delivered his firstborn, he wanted to make sure that they would always remember that God should have the first, God should have the best of everything. That's really the idea. God should be preeminent and have the best in their lives. Now some of us feel that giving God leftovers is good enough. We don't want to give them our best, our first, whatever's left over. If there's any left over, we'll give it to God. A lot of people have this mentality. The best is for us and whatever's left over belongs to God. We sort of feel that way when we have old clothes. Ah, oh, we don't use these things anymore. Give it to the church. Oh, this old piano that's been broken for years and full of dust. Oh, we'll never use it. Let's find some Christian organization that we can unload this thing on. God says, no, the firstborn is mine. I want the best of your life. I want the first. Otherwise, it has to be redeemed. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Uh, Verses 4 through 10, the feast of Passover is again spoken of and emphasized. Look now at verse 9. says, it shall be as a sign to you. Well, let's back up a little bit. Seven days, verse 6, you shall eat unleavened bread. It says that again in verse 7, verse 8. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. One has to travel to Israel today to understand how the Jews interpret this. They see this very literally. Jewish men still wear to this day what they call the tefillin or the phylacteries. It's an old Hebrew plural for the promises of God uh, or prayers. Um, Phylacteries or the tefillin are little boxes that they actually wear on their head between their eyes. If you go to the western wall, you see these men with leather thongs tied to a box, and this box is protruding from the forehead, and on their left hand, uh, the leather is tied with another box on their left hand, which is closest to the heart. It's to be a reminder of them that the law of God is to always be kept, and that they belong completely to the Lord. And within that box contains four separate sections of the Torah, of the law which sort of encapsulates the basic doctrines of Judaism. Uh, This scripture out of uh, the 13th chapter is given a couple different places and a couple out of Deuteronomy as well. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is... Every firstling that comes from an animal which you have, all the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. If you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. A donkey is an unclean animal, unsuitable for sacrifice, unsuitable for worship. But because it's the first, it's dedicated to God. So you take a lamb as a vicarious atonement, or in a, a sacrifice in place of that donkey to redeem it. A life of a lamb is taken from the lamb to redeem the donkey. So you keep the donkey and you give a lamb. That's the whole idea. And then you redeem your own children with silver. You pay for the firstborn five shekels, it will say later on. Now, Peter uses this and he picks up on it in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. He says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the vain traditions passed on by your forefathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. So we're redeemed by his blood, not by any silver. So it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come saying, What is this? as kids so often do, don't they? What does that mean, Dad? You shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animal. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. It shall be as a sign on your hand and frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. It came to pass when Pharaoh would let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, verse 17, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now we get to a real wonderful place. That's all I can say. God has shown me many lessons through this section because now the adventure begins, a real adventure. God is leading them. But it would seem if you're a war strategist and you looked at where they were going, you'd say, this doesn't make sense. I don't know if you guys want to let God lead you because he's leading you in a place that's not very safe. At first it seems like, well, that's all right. He's not leading them uh, where the Philistines are," because otherwise they turn away from war. It says, uh, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But you're going to see how intriguing this gets as they get boxed into a corner here. Verse 18, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. You have a map that has been given to you with your outline. And if you look at that map and you find the land of Goshen where the children of Israel dwell. You see that the shortest route is along the coast, up the coast by the way of the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the Via Maris in ancient terminology, the way of the sea. If the children of Israel would have followed that route, they would have been in Canaan in 11 days. How long did it take them? Forty years. But it wasn't that God's perfect will was that they have 40 years of wandering, it's because of their unbelief. But if they would follow the Gaza Strip, as we call it today, the the coastal route, big problem. Philistines were there. Philistines settled on the coastal regions of Israel. They had become, and they will continue to be, enemies of Israel all the way through the time of David and beyond. The Philistines were warriors. They were brutal. They were well-armed. They had excelled in warfare. The children of Israel were a bunch of slaves. They had no arms. They weren't trained for war. Now, could God have performed a miracle with the Philistines and drove them out like he did the Egyptians? He sure could have, but he decided not to. He knew that the children of Israel had weak faith at this point. And for them to face war would just get them all skittish. Plus, they needed to learn lessons of faith, trust in God's provisions. So he led them out in the desert and eventually to a place called Kadesh Barnea where they're able to spy out the land and decide by faith they'll go in and take it or by unbelief they'll wander for 40 years. They have many lessons to learn. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, let me read verse 2 to you, the Lord your God, Moses said, led you all of the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not." I believe God's perfect will was for the children of Israel to go through the wilderness, go up to Kadesh Barnea, check out the land, believe Joshua and Caleb, who said, Let's go for it, guys. God has given us the lamb. Oh, there's a few giants, but big deal. We have a bigger God. But they didn't believe the report of the two. They believed the report of the ten, and so they wander now for forty years and that generation dies in the wilderness. That wasn't God's perfect will. God wanted to bring them in the wilderness, learn lessons of faith, see the provision of God through the miraculous pillar of fire and cloud, and then take them all the way through. But they didn't take it. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, For he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. That was 200 years before this. Boy, they sure remember things, don't they? They remembered that Joseph wanted his bones taken out and so they did it. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people." Talk about a guidance system. Now, wouldn't you love to have something like that today? Be honest, of course you would. You'd love to get in your car tonight and have a blazing pillar of fire that you knew was the will of God lead you. Turn right, turn left, where to go, who to speak to. When there was a person in the supermarket that you should speak to, that cloud just sort of stops. So you stay there and you witness to them. And then you move on to the next. But we do have a guidance system. God does guide us today. Number one, you've got the Scriptures, the Word of God. Number two, you've got the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And we've got to remember that. So often we look for guidance when we should realize we have the guide living within us. Which is better, a road map? or the personal guide showing you the way to go. I'd rather have the guide. I've been in big cities and I get intimidated by roadmaps even if they're very accurate in big cities. It's better when the, some person who knows the city really well says, hey, I know where to go. Let me just take you there. Hey, all right. I'll still use the map. You've got the road map, the Word of God that you should study and follow, but you've got the Holy Spirit of God living in you who guides you and supernaturally, naturally, takes you to the places where he wants you. And so the Scripture says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, David said, a light unto my path. Now let's go over to chapter 14. We'll barely get into it tonight, and I wanted to just barely get into it so that we can uncover it all next time, but by way of introduction at least, this is the amazing story. This is sort of what all the movies are based around. This is where Charlton Heston became really known, was from Exodus chapter 14. And I can still see it from that movie when I was a kid where he sticks his rod over the sea and the waters open up, where he says, stand still and see the salvation of God. The amazing story about this, or the amazing thing about the story, is that though the natural way to go would be up the coast, God leads them, first of all, in the opposite direction of the land of promise, and then south a little bit. And uh, he actually leads them into a uh, trap. God deliberately leads them into a trap, a deliberate trap. It is so amazing if you study this geographically, topographically, where God led them. Now, chapter 14 is the pivot point for the rest of Israel's history. From now on, throughout all of the Scripture, every Jewish feast almost every Jewish memorial will point back ultimately to the time when they were delivered from Egypt from being slaves. When God opened up the Red Sea, David through the Psalms, Solomon and the prophets will speak that this is the ultimate demonstration of God's love to the children of Israel up to the cross, was that he opened the Red Sea and delivered them. It's always referred to. Now, of course, there are critics and liberals who attack this story, don't they? Oh, I can't believe that water stood up and that people moved on dry land. There's got to be another explanation for it. Let's try to figure out how this could have happened. And there's a lot of interesting um, explanations. One uh, is the naturalistic explanation that there was an earthquake that happened just at the right time. They just happened to be in the right place at the right time. An earthquake happened and uh, some cataclysm caused the uh, Egyptians to be swallowed up by the earth and, and and they went on. The most popular explanation is from the Hebrew words themselves. The word Red Sea in Hebrew is Yam Suf, which literally translated means the Sea of Reeds. Now that's caused a lot of speculation and wondering among scholars, what does that mean, the Sea of Reeds? So the critic, the liberal will say, wow, what that means is, is there's this shallow lake north of the Suez that, uh, um, is filled with reeds, and it's only about a foot and a half to three feet deep. And what happened is a strong wind was sweeping over that region, and it caused sort of an abating of the waters. And the children of Israel waded through, sort of up to their waist or their knees, two and a half million of them, from one side to the other. So it really wasn't a miracle at all. It was the Sea of Reeds. It was shallow water. They just waded through. Okay, liberal scholar, read on in the text. The entire Egyptian army was drowned in a foot and a half of water? I think that's more miraculous. (laughs) Fine, you want to believe that? Hey, no problem. It's still a miracle. It seems that the best explanation of this is this. If you look at your map and you see uh, the Red Sea that comes up, on either side of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. In ancient times, it no doubt extended a little bit further north, sort of as the Dead Sea used to be a lot bigger, but now it has shrunk over the years in Israel. We know that from uh, some of the diggings. And uh, there was an area called the Bitter Sea, which was an extension of the Suez that went further north. It seems that in that extension is where they crossed. It wasn't quite as deep as... Uh, the Red Sea further south, but nonetheless that inlet extended further north and it was closed up when God closed up the Red Sea upon the children of Israel. You know, basically I think we should just move on because I feel sorry for people who have to make explanations for God. How big is your God? Believe the first verse of the Bible, the rest is easy. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hey, that's a pretty good trick. If God can pull that off, This doesn't seem big. What seems big to us is a miracle. It's not big for God. If God instituted the laws of nature, if God instituted uh, the forces that be, God can control them. Oh, but I've never seen water stand straight up. Sure you have. Seen an ice cube. Oh. Well, maybe a strong cold wind came. I don't know, but God did it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before pi Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-zaphon. You shall camp before it by the sea. God leads them into a trap. And, boy, I wish we had time to uncover it, but it's a geographic cul-de-sac. The most vulnerable spot geographically, militarily they could be is where God led them because God wanted to show them when you're trapped and you think there's no way out, God can show that there is a way. God will sometimes deliberately lead us to a place where you are at an end to all of your resources and ability. And your only hope is to look up, is to look to him and to let him deliver. I've had people say, well, things are so bad. All we can do is pray. I think that's the point. That should be our first, not our last resort. All we can do is pray. Boy, I wish we learned that lesson before it got that bad, huh? Really, that's all we can do is just trust our hands to the living God. Uh, Before we close off tonight, and I'm ready to do that, I just want to say one more thing about this. The Egyptians are once again becoming hard, and they follow the children of Israel to this place. They're ready to kill them. They're ready to attack them. You know that Satan, like we've seen all the way through this story as an analogy to the Christian life, intensifies his efforts the further you get away from him. You start moving away. First he tries to compromise, of course, if the attacks don't work, uh, the frontal attack he tries to make you compromise. But the further you get away from his control, the more vehemently he tries to intensify his attack against you. He doesn't want you to go far from him. If you ever get a hold of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, I recommend you read it. Terrific insight by C.S. Lewis into the work of the devil. In fact, C.S. Lewis in the preface said, it was so intense as he wrote this book, he he almost couldn't take it because he had to put himself in the mindset of the devil. That's hard for a Christian to do. As he wrote this book, to think how the devil attacks Christians and to put himself in the mindset as he wrote that book, he said, it almost wiped me out. The intensification of the battle as a person is thinking about Jesus Christ. Should I accept him? I'm listening to my friends telling me about Jesus. Maybe I should. Boy, if you're in that waiting area, he will often intensify his attack because he doesn't want you to make that break with him and to follow Jesus Christ. He'll do anything he can to keep you back from that. Often, um, either a person in that situation or even a young believer who just makes a commitment to Jesus Christ, gets tempted like he never knew he could be. Which should be an indication that you're on the right path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we close our Bibles, we open our hearts. We thank you for your work. We thank you, Lord, for the way you lead your people. That we have the Spirit of God living within us today searching us, guiding us, leading us into all truth. We know, Lord, that the enemy seeks to confound us. He intensifies his attacks against people who are considering the claims of Jesus Christ. He tempts young believers who have freshly made commitments to Jesus Christ. We pray tonight that, Father, you would step in You would be the one who gives us guidance and leadership, and that we would stand behind you as you do battle with the enemy. We thank you, Father, for the power of the blood that is applied to our lives. And the greater is that one who is in us than he that is in the world. We stand complete. We stand protected. Lord, I pray if the enemy is lying to anyone tonight, trying to convince that person who has heard the claims of Christ, (laughs) who's toying with the idea, perhaps, of should I, should I not give my life to Christ, Lord, that you might pursue that person in your love and sort of clench it in the heart of that person, that there's no better place to place one's life and heart than in the arms of a loving Savior. Lord, you still change lives, as we heard Lisa share tonight. Lord, would you change a few more tonight, we pray.